open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to buy one for you. Or if you want to go buy your own, um, I typically read from the ESV translation. You don't have to get that one, but it helps follow along a little bit. Um, but I really want to encourage you guys, as we go through 1 Corinthians, to bring your Bibles to church. I believe so, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you can pick one up, or the app, if you use an iPhone or an Android phone, the ESV application is totally free. So you can download that. Um, we won't judge you if you're in church looking at your phone. We'll, we'll believe that you're reading along. Yes, there you go. I like your style. Um, I use Amazon for everything because I'm too lazy to drive to Chandler. So, um, so that's, that would be my recommendation. Um, but uh, I'm super excited to, uh, to be with you guys this morning, to be going through 1 Corinthians. Um, we are starting a new series called Dynamic Dysfunction, and I've really been learning a lot uh, in my study of 1 Corinthians. I'm excited to share that stuff with you, and it's always thrilling when you read your Bible and it comes alive to you. Uh, I, hopefully you've had an experience like that where you're reading it and you realize, wow, this is more than just words on a page. This is very different than reading Goodnight Moon. Okay? I mean, this is alive and true and, and life-changing stuff on these pages. So I want to explain real quick the idea behind this series for you as we tackle one of the longer books in the New Testament. Um, the, the, the church has always been the most dynamic organization in the world. We talked about that a little bit over the last couple of weeks as we did that series, Revolution. There's no single organization that's had a greater effect on the progress of mankind than the church that Jesus established before he ascended to go back into heaven. And, and the church, if you look historically, the church has been the greatest contributor to education for the masses. The greatest contributor to health care for the masses up until about the 20th century. The greatest keeper of historical records. The greatest defender of the poor and the defenseless and the establishment of justice in history. And it's been the most effective cause of life change throughout the story of humanity. That's a pretty incredible position to have in the world amongst humanity. Okay? And it, I, I believe that the church has truly been the greatest force for good that the world has ever seen. It's an incredibly dynamic organization with a global influence and a membership beyond any other organization that there is that exists. It's massive and incredible what the church has done. And I believe to this day the church remains dynamic, the dynamic institution that Jesus uh, began 2,000 years ago, although I would say in America it's lost some of its influence, okay? Now, in the midst of being dynamic like that, the church also has been plagued with dysfunction, sometimes very deep dysfunction. I remember the day that my dad came to me and he was like, I quit my job as a pastor today and I never want to work in a church again, okay? And I was shocked by that, right? And to this day, he hasn't because he encountered some very deep dysfunction in churches. And even as the church has changed and shaped the world for good, a lot of times it's lost its vision of the cross. It's lost its vision for Christ. And it's gone and done some very dysfunctional things, okay? Both at the macro level on a huge scale and at the micro level, you know, in, in organizations specifically like Maricopa Springs, churches like our church. The small picture, okay? And you don't, have to real, you don't have to look too far to realize that the church today 
even today, is dysfunctional. I mean, ask a lot of Americans why they don't go to church, and a lot of times they'll say, well, I really like Jesus. I think he's a great guy. I just don't really like church. It's not my thing. And we could be tempted to think that this is sort of a modern development, okay, that the church is plagued with dysfunction today, and that that began, you know, maybe in the Enlightenment, or maybe it began in the 60s and 70s in the Cultural Revolution in America. We could be tempted to think that the church has been dynamic up until the recent past, and we just sort of lost something in the last, you know, couple of decades or couple of centuries. But that's not the case at all. And if you read your Bible, you see, in 1 Corinthians specifically, that the church has always been an incredibly dynamic institution. But the church has always had its dysfunction. Always. And so the reason that I'm really excited for this series is because I'm thrilled to spend some time with you kind of getting fired up about the dynamic things that are going on in our church, specifically Maricopa Springs, in the church in our community, the other churches around town, and the church globally. I mean, we are going to see that God is still at work in his church as we look through the pages of 1 Corinthians. And I'm also excited to call out some of the dysfunction that the church sometimes slips into so that we can weed that out, so we can hunt down that dysfunction in our church and get it out of here, acknowledge that it's there, and overcome it by God's grace. Because I believe that the church has a mandate to remain the most dynamic, influential institution in the world. I believe that. It, it's not some other nonprofit organization. It's not an NGO. It's not a, a political viewpoint. It's not... Uh, a, 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 um, a, a business or something that's going to be the most dynamic, it's going to be the church. It will be the church. It's going to accomplish that mandate to stay the most dynamic. So the question for us at Maricopa Springs, I believe, is how do we stay dynamic in the midst of our dysfunction? Okay? One of the benefits we have is that we're a small church, so we have smaller dysfunction. As we become bigger, we'll have bigger dysfunction. But maybe we can work to minimize that even now as we look at what God has to say in his word. Okay? So how do we as a church stay dynamic in the midst of our dysfunction? I don't personally have a great answer for you there, but I believe that 1 Corinthians does. So let me read verses 1 through 9. We're going to read the whole first chapter here this morning. But start with me with verses 1 through 9. And if you don't have your Bible, just listen as I read. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, I've been encouraging you to read 1 Corinthians as we do this, and I mean... One of the problems with trying to do 
a 16-chapter book of the Bible in 16 weeks. It's like, how do you pick what to talk about? In nine verses, there's so much meat here that I'm, I'm sort of like overwhelmed. I'm standing up here, I'm thinking, man, I should have said this and this and this, but it's not in my notes. <laughs> but let's stop right here, because what I want you to see um, as we go through this series, and a lot of it is going to be exegesis, which is just a fancy word for saying explanation. I gave you a little definition there, so you don't have to be afraid. The first time I heard that word, I was like, what about Jesus? Different word, exegesis, okay? Rather than having this warm, fuzzy time where I get up and tell you what, the, what this passage of the Bible means to me personally, a very subjective interpretation of Scripture, I want us to seek an explanation from what the Bible says. And that's really what exegesis is. We're going to work hard to pull wisdom out of the text of the Bible as we go through 1 Corinthians. And hopefully, even though there's so much here, we can do it slow enough that we don't drown in how much wisdom the Bible contains, okay? I guess if we drown in that, that's better than, than the alternative. Um, but, uh, but let's start right here. What I want you to see here is how many times Paul uses the words Jesus and Christ in these first nine verses. How many times he uses the name of Christ. It's almost annoying. If you weren't reading your Bible and you were just sitting there, you probably heard Jesus and Christ and Jesus and Christ and over and over and over again. He's sort of like a girl who just got engaged who, uh, you know, to the man of her dreams, and, and you're having a conversation with her, and she just can't shut up about how great this guy is and how excited she is, okay? You've probably all experienced a situation like this. It's actually wonderful. It's very exciting to hear somebody talk like that. You know, a girl, she gets engaged, and it becomes abundantly clear within two minutes. She's, like, doing this whole thing, you know, making sure you see the ring. She's bragging about how much she loves her new fiancé, how at the forefront of her mind and all of her thoughts and all of her planning and all of her thinking is their engagement and their wedding. And, and she's all bubbly and excited and pretty much nothing else matters. Okay? That's sort of like fresh love. When people get fired up about something, they tend to wear it on their sleeves. It could be anything. A new job, a new house, a new friendship, a new movie, a new relationship. When, when people get fired up, we wear it on their sleeves. And Paul is no different. He uses the name of Jesus in some form eight times in nine verses. My translation, which gets a little wordy grammatically, is only three sentences. Three sentences, and he uses the name of Jesus eight times. So it becomes glaringly clear from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians that the focus of all of Paul's attention as he writes this letter is Jesus. It's almost embarrassingly so. I mean, if you were standing beside him as he was saying this, you'd almost want to nudge him and sort of be like, dude, take it down a notch, all right? Like, you're starting to sound a little bit crazy. But not at all. Because Paul understands that if the church is dynamic at all, it's dynamic because of Jesus. That's what makes the church dynamic, and it started me wondering as I read this, if somebody came to our church just one time, they sat through one service and they talked to a handful of people here, and then we interviewed them just before they got in their car, and we asked them, what's the one thing that this church stands for? What would they say? Would it be so abundantly clear to them that at the very center of all that we stand for is the person of Jesus? so abundantly clear that they would have absolutely no problem answering that question. 
would they even have to think about it? Or would they just say, man, clearly it's Jesus. And if it's not that, then honestly, we're not moving in the right direction. And and we're probably never going to actually ask anyone that question. That might be sort of weird. But the fact remains that if our church is going to minimize our dysfunction and capitalize on being dynamic, then we have to be as obsessed with Jesus as Paul is. That's at the very heart of it. He has to be everything for us. He has to be the center and the focus. And, and I believe we can make that application on a personal level too, right? If we ask somebody who really knows you, or even somebody who knows you casually, what's the most important thing in your life? What would they say? Would they respond and say that it's clearly Jesus, or would it be something less than him? Not something other than him, something less than him. Because anything other than him is less than him. And as we work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says some really, really hard things. He says some intense and harsh things, difficult things to swallow regarding the dysfunction of the church in Corinth. And so it's very important that we remember, as Paul says these things, that he opened his letter with this introduction. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay? Paul is making it very clear that whatever else he brings up, his goal is to make Jesus the center in the church in Corinth. He wants to bring the church of Corinth back to a focus on Christ. And anything that distracts from that, it's got to go. And it's for the sake of the name of Christ that he's going to address the dysfunction. He doesn't want to pretend like it's not there. He's going to address it for the sake of the name of Christ. And he's going to remind them over and over and over again, this is how dynamic the church can be. And he's going to call them out of their sin. He's going to call them out of their dysfunction into unity in Christ. Okay? So in summary, if there's a theme to 1 Corinthians... It's that Jesus is the center of the dynamic reality that is the church. Let me state it again. If the church is dynamic, it's because of Jesus. And if the church is dysfunctional, it's because there's not enough Jesus. So Paul establishes this theme to his letter to the church in Corinth. And then he goes straight for the jugular of their primary dysfunction. Paul is not the kind of guy to beat around the bush. He just goes right for it. Read verses 10 through 17 with me. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul planted this church in Corinth. He laid the groundwork. He got the church going. He spent a year and a half to two years in Corinth getting the church up on its feet. 
And then he left to move on to plant other churches. And shortly after he started this church, Corinth was blessed to have a number of different highly motivational, energetic, and powerful preachers come in and build on his foundation. Guys like Peter, guys like Apollos. Cephas is another name for Peter. And this is in a city, Corinth, that highly valued the wisdom and entertainment that came with hearing motivational speakers. Corinth was a Roman city, but it was on Greek, uh, Greek land. It had been captured by the Romans, but it was Greek. With these Greek roots that valued philosophy and well-crafted ideas. It didn't have movies, it didn't have TV, it didn't have radio programs. So people enjoyed gathering together and listening to new philosophical or religious ideas. Intellectually engaging with what was going on. And then debating that and, and taking sides and forming factions. It was a culture that loved to hear people speak and present persuasive arguments on various topics. So as a result, the church in Corinth became divided around these different preaching personalities. Right? You had the pastor-preacher celebrities coming into town and, and gaining followers. They started these little fan clubs saying that, well, I belong to Peter's preaching style. I belong to Paul's preaching style. I belong to Apollos' preaching style. And from everything I've read, Apollos was a pretty phenomenal preacher. Or then you had even the holier-than-thou group that says, I don't like any of those guys. I'm, I'm just a Jesus-only guy. Okay, We're better than everyone else because we just stick to Jesus. And Paul reminds them what really matters in the preaching of the gospel is Christ. Christ. The good news that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead to prove his power over sin and evil and death. And he says what's important is not eloquent words, but the proclamation of that message. The words of wisdom, the techniques, the styles, the things that intrigue you as entertainment is all irrelevant. It's not in powerful preaching. It's not in persuasive words of wisdom. It's in the power of the cross of Christ. It's the content, not the delivery. The power lies in Jesus and his work, not in the well-crafted or persuasive speaking techniques. And see how even in these verses, Paul brings us back to Jesus. And, and we could be tempted today to think that we don't have these kinds of dysfunctions, we don't have these kinds of problems, because Peter and Apollos aren't around anymore. So it's irrelevant. Eh, these verses don't really apply. Okay? But it happens here in Maricopa. I go to Church of Celebration because they're the big church in town. I go to Maricopa Springs because the pastor wears flip-flops. I go to Church of, or Community of Hope because they're the compassionate church. I go to the Baptist church because they preach from the Bible. Okay, whatever it is, right, whatever ridiculous reason it is, we can actually find ourselves explaining to people that we go to the church we go to for a reason other than Jesus. Do you see that? It's, it's totally okay to have preferences. If you don't like our worship style or the way that I dress or the way that I teach, that's totally okay. You can have preferences. That's not the problem. If you find a church that you like for certain reasons, go there. Go there. But the primary reason, 
that we find ourselves glued to a church should always be because we meet Jesus there. If it's for a reason other than that, then we're sticking to things that simply don't matter. And Paul tells his audience in 1 Corinthians, listen, it's not about these celebrity pastors. It's about the message they proclaim, which is Christ crucified and risen for you. Read on with me. We'll get a little bit more insight here. Verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Just hearing this, this is hard to follow along with. But this is beautiful rhetoric. Paul was a very educated man. He's showing off right here to his audience. Okay, I encourage you to read these verses over again as you go home. He's showing off. He's talking very, with very flourishing words. But again, he wants us to understand the point here. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks, seeks, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love the way he puts that. Not the wisdom of man is less than God, but, but he says the foolishness of God far surpasses even the wisdom of men. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. That word, just so you know, as we go through 1 Corinthians, is the Greek word adelphoi. It means brothers and sisters. Okay? It means family members. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. At the, at the heart of this whole dysfunction in 1 Corinthians is the sin of pride. Okay, the people in Corinth were divided because they wanted to be somebody. They wanted celebrity status. They wanted to feel socially significant. So they attached themselves to people who they thought would bring them status. We don't do that, right? Never. We don't have that problem anymore today. And what Paul reminds them is that a powerful, uh, what he reminds them is a powerful message that destroys this division and dysfunction. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, According to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose you to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world. He chose you. You're his chosen people, and he chose you to shame the strong. He says, in effect, look, you so desperately want to be somebody. You want celebrity status. You want your 15 minutes of fame. You want to be significant. But you're not. He says, you're a nobody. You have no status. Most of you were just simple peasants living in Rome. Well, in in a Roman society. You want to feel wise. You want to feel educated and intellectual. You want to be the artistic or philosophical or wealthy or powerful one. And Paul reminds him, you're not. You're just simple people. You're a nobody. But don't despair. Because God chose you to shame the wise. God chose you to shame the strong. God takes nobodies like you and like me and makes them into somebodies through Christ Jesus. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to know what one of the primary destroyers of a church is? It's pride. It's totally pride. When we gain our self-worth from something other than Jesus, we are on the fast path to being totally irrelevant as a church. When we think that our church is growing in depth and width because we read the ESV Bible translation, or because our music is hip, or because our pastor is cool, or because our people are nicer, or our doctrine is better, or our good works are nicer, whatever it may be, when it comes off of Jesus and becomes something that, that we do, as soon as we think we are somebody for any reason other than simply knowing Jesus, then we've let our dysfunction overtake our calling to be dynamic. And if you're going to boast, boast in Jesus. Don't boast in what you know. What you know. Don't boast in what you do. Don't boast in who you hang out with. Boast in the fact that you are somebody because you know Jesus. That's worth boasting about. Let me try and sum it up for you real quick. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the message that we preach as Christians is foolishness to the world. It is. I mean, have you ever tried to explain the gospel to somebody whose heart hasn't been inspired by the Holy Spirit? And they look at you like, really? That's what you believe? I mean, listen to this. We believe that the God of the universe gave up all of his power and dominion and authority to become a man like you and me. And instead of coming here to put the world into slavery to serve his every desire, he humbly served us while we were lowly and despised wretched sinners. And then he died on a cross to forgive us of our sins and vanquish evil. And then contrary, take it a step further, contrary to everything that we know about being human, when you die, you stay dead, He rose from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. And he rose to be with God in heaven. He ascended to sit on the throne of glory. And he did all of that, not because we were somebody who deserved it, but because he's faithful and good and true. Do you see how backwards that message is? 
When you share that with somebody who doesn't get it, whose heart hasn't been sparked by the Holy Spirit, they look at you like you're crazy. That's foolishness. And that's basically what Paul says. God chose foolishness to shame the wise because his foolishness is wiser than humans can ever attain. Jesus became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I gave you definitions of those words on your notes, and I encourage you to to ponder those at some point. And Paul says all of this to make this point. If God did that for you, took on that kind of foolishness in all of his glory for you, doesn't that make you somebody? I mean, you may not be famous like Justin Bieber. You may not be an athletic superstar like Michael Jordan. You may not be fabulously wealthy like Warren Buffett or powerful like Barack Obama. You may not be beautiful like Gwyneth Paltrow or brilliant like Albert Einstein. But the God of all things thought that you were significant enough to come and die for you. Doesn't that make you somebody? It makes you significant. And honestly, if Jesus dying for you doesn't make you somebody, nothing ever will. You will never have enough money or fame or fortune or power or self-righteousness to find significance. God gives you significance. So let's let our hearts swell with pride as a church that we know Jesus That we are indeed somebody because even though we were nobody, Jesus died for us. I want to just conclude with one thought and then a little bit more scripture. Some of you might be thinking, I'll be honest, I'm I'm self-conscious in my teaching. Okay, I I always want to be better. And some of you might be thinking, I don't know about this Grady guy. Okay, every time I come here, he sort of sounds like a broken record. He's always talking about Jesus. And honestly, like sometimes I pray and I wish that God would make my teaching more practical, that I would uh, be able to give you useful tips on how to improve your marriage, on how to be better parents, on how to be better neighbors and better friends, better coworkers, how to be better humans in general. And I keep trying to figure out how to do that in my teaching at Maricopa Springs. We even recently did a series called Practical Christianity that was sort of geared towards that. And as much as I strive for that, I I just keep coming back to Jesus. I I just can't get over it. I mean, what we really need, thank you. I'm encouraged by that. I mean, what we really need is a revolution of the heart that comes through knowing Jesus. And please don't misunderstand me. This is not a pride thing for me. This is about Jesus. And I, I, I sincerely believe, truly, If we just keep fixing our eyes on him, if we set our hearts on Jesus, truly, then everything else is going to fall into place. I mean, I can go read uh, psychology books and try and give you marriage pointers. I can read psychology books and try and give you parenting pointers. But none of that's going to matter if Jesus isn't changing our hearts. And and truly, I keep searching scripture to give you nuggets for practical living and pointers for self-improvement, but all that I find in the pages of my Bible is just Jesus. 
And I want so badly for our weak, foolish, and ignoble church to brag about Jesus. Really. It's not, not even how much we know him. Not how good we are at following him or even how well we proclaim him. I don't want us to brag about how we pull it off. I just want us to brag simply in the fact that Jesus has made us somebody. That's a beautiful thing to brag about. And I sincerely believe that if we find ourselves in him, then all the other stuff is going to follow. That's why Paul starts his letter in 1 Corinthians this way. It's not wishful thinking. It's not oversimplification. It's true, which is why Paul proclaims it. Let me just close reading these verses to you again, and I hope that in a new way they're powerful for you. Verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord let me pray God I pray that we would be boastful and prideful people in the sense that we know that we are somebody because you love us and God everything apart from that humble us Let us be a church with very little dysfunction and great amounts of dynamic power to change the world for you. God, may we be people whose hearts are focused on you. May we be a church that is dynamic because we love Jesus and we're confident of your love for us. God, would you change us into those people, please? It's in your name we pray. Amen.